0: All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back again as we regather on our Sundays. My name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, people have been asking me, like, is today a special occasion? Why are you dressed up in 90-degree weather wearing a tie? And I'm just happy to be back. And so I'm just looking forward to gathering together, looking forward to corporate worship. And in my conservative Reformed Baptist style, I just wear a suit and wear a little tie just to show my, uh, just uh, how happy I am to be joined together with all of us here. This is your first time here again. uh, We've just been regathering for the past two weeks. This is our second Sunday, although last Sunday it felt like a mission trip because uh, the AC wasn't working and so it felt like uh, we really were trying our best to worship together corporately, but today a little bit more comfortable, thankful for all the, the faculty members at Park High School that made this work because the AC actually was broken and they fixed it, so super happy for that. Um, but not only are we regathering, but uh, we're beginning a new season, we feel, for our church because a lot of things have happened this past year online um, and as we begin this new season for our church, regathering and a lot of things that we have planned, uh, we're also beginning a new sermon series uh, through the book of Nehemiah. Now, I'm not sure if you ever read through the book of Nehemiah, if you ever heard a sermon series through Nehemiah, or if you've even heard of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, but it's a short book in the Old Testament, and it, even though it's in the middle of the Old Testament, it's actually the last event, the last historical event that happened right before the New Testament when Jesus comes. So at the end of Nehemiah, there's times that pass, and then all of a sudden we see Jesus is born. Uh, So this is a pivotal season, or pivotal story, uh, and it's actually the the second part of another story that our church went through before. I don't know if you guys remember, back in 2019, we went through a book called the Book of Ezra, and if you don't remember that we went through that, that's why our brother, Pastor Sam, his son, his name is Ezra, because we actually went through that series. So who knows, his second child might be Nehemiah, I don't know. Uh, But we preached through the Book of Ezra, and Ezra, if you don't remember, the context of that was the nation of Israel... They were exiled for 70 years, the temple was destroyed, worship had stopped, and that was for over 70 years. But all of a sudden, uh, a Persian king, he said, hey, all of you exiles who are stuck in Babylon here, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the city, and rebuild the temple. And what happened was, we actually saw in the book of Ezra, a first group, a first wave, because not everyone returned at once, a first group of people went back to Jerusalem, and they built the temple. Then a second group went back to Jerusalem, and they built up the community. And then the reason why we went through that series is because we kind of saw as we moved to Buena Park High School, because we actually have only been here for a few years, actually less than a few months because of COVID, what happened was we actually saw this season at that time as a season for us to build up the community to build up the church. And we saw a lot of parallels happening with Ezra, and we want to see how did God work in that community, building them up, and how does that translate to us? We were excited at the time. I remember in 2019, I was super excited what was going to happen with our church, the potential, the opportunities. And all of a sudden, as we all know, a global pandemic hit us, and we stopped gathering at the building, and we were, in a sense, in exile for about a year and a half or so. But now we're back, and now we're here, And now we see that there's actually a season that we can't just presume things are normal, but it's a season that we see as a season of rebuilding. It's a rebuilding moment for our church. And that's why I'm super thankful for the book of Nehemiah. Because what happened was we saw in Ezra a group of people returning to build up the community, to build up the temple, things constantly stopped. They were constantly on pause. There was constantly interruption. And what happens is in the book of Nehemiah, the book that we're gonna go through, We actually see a third group return from Babylon to Jerusalem, and they're also going to build up something as well. They are here to rebuild the community, to rebuild the people, to rebuild what God is doing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this series or look at this book together for the next few weeks, starting in Nehemiah chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, if you could turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, or if you don't have your Bibles, we also have it on the screen as well. But Nehemiah chapter 1. It's a little bit before uh, the book of Psalms, in case you're looking for it in in the Bible, but also it's gonna be on the screen for all of us who don't have that with us. And we're gonna read starting in verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. The Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcast are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the reading of God's word. Would you all join me in prayer and we'll begin our time praying to the Lord together. Father, we lift up this new season for you as we strive, O oh God, to rebuild this community, this church May we see we can't do it without you, so guide us, O oh Lord, to see what this looks like. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you bless this time together as we gather again as your church. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Like many of you, I do most of my work every day in front of a computer. I have a little laptop, Apple, MacBook that I use all the time. But probably like many of you, uh, I turn it on all the time, but I rarely turn it off. And what I mean by that is that, I don't know about you guys, but instead, I, don't, I never press the power button. The power button's kind of useless on my laptop. I simply just close my laptop whenever my day is done. And the next day, I open up, and all the tabs are just right waiting for me. My Word documents, my internet tabs, it's just kind of all there, right in front of me. I realize, actually, the only time I ever bother to turn off and reboot my computer is for a couple reasons. Is one, if the apps aren't working and it needs an update, that little gray thing that pops up saying update needed, then I'll update my computer by turning it off. Or if the wi fi is not working, for some reason that's kind of the one go-to is I'll turn off my computer because I need Wi-Fi. Or most of the times, if my computer is acting kind of slow, if it's loading really slowly and the, the apps are loading slowly, then I will turn off my laptop and I'll reboot it. And the reason why is because computers, they actually, the reason why I actually go slow all the time like that is you're supposed to reboot it. You know it's not good for your computer to run 24-7. I mean, I looked it up. You're supposed to reboot your computer once a week. I haven't rebooted my computer for the past month. And that's probably one reason why the computer runs slowly. It's because it needs to be refreshed. It needs to get rid of the, the, what's known as the internet cobwebs. It needs to have a clear RAM. It needs to just be completely refreshed for your computer to operate the way it was designed to operate. In his book, Reappearing Church, the Australian author Mark Sayers, He says, this is sometimes what we need as well. God sometimes looks down upon his people, and he does something by uh, stopping all the things that we were normally doing because we also need to be refreshed. When this happens, when you see something pause, when you see the rhythms of normal life kind of just be interrupted, what Sayer says is usually there's something deeper that's taking place, and he calls the word renewal. Seasons of pause, seasons of interruptions, as tough as those are, oftentimes, with eyes of faith, they are seasons of actually a renewal might be happening. By renewal, what sayer means is an awakening to God's presence, a return to God's purpose. Because oftentimes, even though you get a new job, you have a new relationship, you're excited, keep going, going through the normal routine, you kind of forget what the reason why you're working. You kind of don't appreciate, really, the, the relationship that you're in. And that's when something changes, when something pauses, when something interrupts it. It's meant to wake us up. And when you see not just people going through that, but you see a community and you see a city, when that's all taking place, everyone's pausing, everyone's renewing, everyone's experiencing God's presence, what you start to see there is a revival. That's when a revival begins. But according to Sayers, in order for there to be a renewal where you know God might be doing something right now, there's always three things that needs to be there. It's always three elements. And these are the ingredients that you know there might be something that's happening. There's always, number one, a crisis. It never comes on our own, but there's always some type of crisis that people cannot have controlled. It's always God's initiative, meaning we can't just ask God bring renewal, but God chooses to bring his renewal. God chooses to bring his presence. And number three, it always begins with one person. It's It's never a whole community at once becomes renewed. There's always a spark that begins, and then a fire begins to Erupt. And when that happens, when you have all those ingredients, you can potentially see a renewal that could lead to revival is taking place. Mark Sayers in his book, Reappear in Church, he says it like this: quote, trace revival back to its origins, and you would inevitably find a person or handful of people moved by God. People who took God who God took on a renewal process that first changed them before it changed others. They experience a microcosm of revival. And usually this process happens to people who are not necessarily the leader everyone's expecting to be powerfully in a move of God. Instead, the process of renewal remolds them for God's purpose. You see what Sayers is saying here. He's saying that any type of moment that happens where people are just awakened to God, it always happens when one person is renewed first, when individuals are. And they're oftentimes not the likely person that you expect. This is exactly what we see happen in the book of Nehemiah. God is moving. He's moving at this moment. A crisis had just finished. The exile had ended. And what we see is a focus, a zoomed in lens on a single person who this book is named after, Nehemiah. Nehemiah, to give a little background, he was was a Jewish man, but he never lived in Jerusalem because he was born during the exile. His parents were likely exiled to Babylon, so he was a foreigner his whole life. He was raised in the Persian Empire. And he he was, what we know in verse 11, the cupbearer to the king. Not about you, but when you think of a cupbearer, I think of a person holding a cup for somebody, and I think, oh, waiter or server. Not at all. To be a cupbearer to a king is a very highly prestigious position. He is in the kingdom with the king, picking out the king's wine, picking out what the king drinks. And I don't know about you, if you know any wine connoisseurs, they're very particular about their wine. They know if you know your wine and if you don't, and this is the king we're talking about. So for Nehemiah, this foreign Jew, to be the cupbearer to the Persian king, he must know his wine, meaning his whole life he was probably a foodie, He was really into food, trying out all the different foods in the area of the Persian kingdom. He most likely raised a vineyard, and he most likely learned the arts of making wine. He most likely, most people heard, there's this guy named Nehemiah. If you want good cabs, if you want a great white wine, if you want a good Merlot, go to Nehemiah, because his vineyard, it's like the Napa Valley of the Persian Empire, And he was probably so well known that the kingdom noticed this foreigner saying, Hey, I heard you're the best winemaker ever. Come and serve the king his wine. And so, where's Nehemiah right now at this book? Nehemiah, he is at the pinnacle of what a vineyard owner could be in his career. He made it, he's living in the palace in the Persian Empire. He always has access to the king because he's serving him wine. He's always drinking wine with the king and dining with him. He is regularly talking with the king. You see, Nehemiah, he was not a prophet. He was not a priest. Nor was he also a king. He was simply a successful young guy working the business who happens to be working the wine industry and is now dining with royalty. However, out of everybody in the world, God chose him to go and rebuild his people and bring renewal in his land. In a similar way, we also, at our church, in our community, at this season, I believe there's an opportunity for us, for us to experience renewal, for us to experience the presence of God again, to remember what his purposes are for our lives. And My hope is that in this series, through Nehemiah, Our souls can be awakened that no matter what context that we are in, no matter if you are in the ministry, but most of us are outside the ministry, whether you're uh, doing secular work, whether you're doing spiritual work, whatever that means, that God could see us and use us as an opportunity to be renewed and to bring renewal in this time. But here's the question. Who are the types of people God renews? Who are the types of people God uses to bring renewal, to experience his presence, and to be reminded of his purpose? We're going to do a character study through Nehemiah in this first chapter, and we're going to notice that there are three things, three types of people, three characteristics of people that God uses to bring renewal to his people. Number one, the people God uses are people who, number one, care about the things of God. Number two, people who are saturated by the word of God. Number three, people who are faithful in the opportunities from God. So people who care about the things of God, saturated by the word of God, faithful in the opportunities from God. Let's look at the first point. God brings renewal through people who care about the things of God. Story of Nehemiah begins where Nehemiah, he's living in the palace in Babylon. He's living with royalty. He's chilling. All of a sudden, people from Judah, people from Jerusalem, from the exiles, those who were building the temple, they come to Babylon, and they have a report. They run into Nehemiah, and they go, hey, we have something to tell you. In verse 3, this is what Nehemiah writes. Nehemiah, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Here's the problem. He asks, hey, what's going on with the people who moved? And the exiles, they say, hey, they're back. They rebuilt the temple. But here's the thing. The walls are broken. They have no walls. Now, for us, we don't, what's the big deal if there's no walls? Imagine that you have a, a friend who bought a new home, and you go to their home, and they have no door. You go, where's your door? They go, oh, these complexes, they don't have doors. That's just the way they're built. What's gonna happen if a robber comes in? Yeah, that's why I have a gun, man. Just, I just have to arm myself now. Or that's why I'm learning uh, jujitsu, just gotta get ready. It's like, that's a stressful thing. A door is like the basic thing you need in order for your home to be secure. And that's kind of what the city was like. To, have, to be a city in Jerusalem with no walls, even though everything's rebuilt, even though there are people in there, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable from evasion. You're vulnerable to attack. You're vulnerable from people trespassing. And when Nehemiah heard this, that they have no walls, he doesn't go, oh, man, sucks. That sucks for them. Or why didn't they build a wall? What's, how, what were they thinking? He doesn't respond that way. Look what he says in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Interesting response. Nehemiah, he doesn't know who these exiles are. These guys are a community of people who are far away. Nehemiah, he actually never been even in Jerusalem. The walls are torn in Jerusalem, he's never been there. And Nehemiah, he is far away from this context. He lives 1,700 miles away from Jerusalem right now. That's like from here to past Texas. That's how far away it is. And yet, When Nehemiah hears this news about people in trouble in Jerusalem, the text emphasizes that he wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. In fact, Nehemiah, he didn't just cry and weep and then go back to work, but later we learn in in verse six that he was weeping and praying day and night, every day in other words. And in chapter two we learn he did this for four months. Four months straight he's just crying and weeping and fasting, why, why do you care so much Nehemiah, who cares, your life is good, you're in a palace, they're far away, removed, what's going on there, why didn't Nehemiah care, and here's the reason, he cared about them because he knew God cared about them, he knew God cared about them, verse 10, Nehemiah says when he's praying to God, they are your servants and they are your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, that's why Nehemiah is born. Nehemiah knows God's heart is there. And therefore, Nehemiah's heart is there as well. Imagine you love the Dodgers. And I know, I'm speaking to a lot of us here. Imagine you're a Dodger fan and you love the Dodgers. And then a friend comes, he goes, you love the Dodgers? Hey, game seven World Series coming up. Wanna watch it together? Because I love the Dodgers too. And she so goes, go, sure. So you and your friend go to his house, watching game seven that the Dodger is playing, but as you're watching it, you notice something. You notice when the Dodger player hits a home run, you're cheering, getting off the couch, but you know what your friend is doing? He's just on his phone, just scrolling. You notice that when the ref makes, or the umpire makes a bad call, you're screaming, going, what are you doing? But your friend, he's just looking at his watch, going, oh. You notice when the Dodgers win, you're clapping, jumping up and down, but your friend, he's asleep if you fell asleep. I bet you, you will never watch another Dodger game with that person again. I bet you that you will never really believe that he's a real Dodger fan. You know why? He doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to care. Why do we feel that way about this person? Even though he said he's a Dodgers fan, here's why. Winston Smith wrote a book called Marriage Matters and he says this about emotions. He says, quote, emotions, they communicate the value you place on something The same way a price tag does. When you spend a lot of money on something, it demonstrates how great a value it has to you. When you feel deeply about something, it means that it has great value to you. Your emotions tell you how important something is to you and how you value it. The stronger the emotion, the more important it is to you. Your emotions tell you what you care about. And this is the first reason why we know of all the people in the world, why did God choose Nehemiah? A winemaker living far away to bring revival to his people. It's because, not because Nehemiah's the most gifted person, not because he's the most knowledgeable person, not because he had the best opportunity even either, but he saw a man who cared about the things that he cared about. He saw somebody who cared about the things of God. What about you? What do your emotions communicate about what you care deeply about in life. Do you know what you care about? Sometimes hard to think, like, what do you like? Because we could be deceptive in our emotions. So That's why I always quote quote the psychologist named Alfred Adler, and he says, you know, if you want to know what you really care about, don't think about what makes you happy. Don't think about your joy. You know what you gotta think about? Think about your nightmares. Think about your worries. What do you worry about? What burdens you on a daily basis? That's your real joy. That's what you care about. Some of you, you are so burdened all the time by deadlines, assignments, a pile of work at home. You're burdened, you're not just like, oh, I have a deadline, but it's okay. You're stressed out, why? Because you care about your work. You care deeply about your career, and that's why it stresses you out. Some of you, you're burdened when you look in the mirror. You see yourself, you go, oh, gotta work out this summer. Or, oh, Again, another blemish on the face. And the reason why? You care deeply about your appearance. You care deeply about your reputation. Some of you, you're burdened by your marriage. You're burdened by your children. You're burdened by your friends. Because you care deeply about the relationships in your life. They matter to you. And a lot of those are good things. A lot of those are understandable things. But realize your burdens, they reveal what you really care about? However, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, are you ever burdened by the things God is burdened by? Do you care about the things that God cares about? Are you, for example, burdened by people? Because God, he really cares about people. People made in his image, people he calls us to love our neighbor. But do you worry about anybody in your life besides yourself? Is there somebody you go, oh man, this person, I, just, I share life with them, I share life with people, and I just know they're going through stuff, and you just feel this burden for them. Are people valuable in your life? Do you care about them? Are you burdened by God's church? God caused the church his bride. He died for his church. When you hear a member struggling, do you care? When you know volunteers are needed, do you care? When the AC is broken, do you care about the church? Or is it like, oh, it's so hot? Is it about you? Do you care? Are you ever burdened by justice and mercy taking place in the city? We have a God who literally says he loves justice. He desires mercy. But do you care when you see injustice in the news? When you go to the OEMC food bank that our church does, do you feel burdened by the people that you see there? Do you even go to the food bank? Is that even on your radar? You know, when I first met my wife, We bonded for many reasons. We had mutual friends. We uh, had the same sense of humor. Uh, We had good chemistry. But you know what made us bond really deeply? We both shared a deep passion and burden for overseas mission in China. My wife, she had a huge burden for the nation of China. She even went there for a year. I had a big burden to go to China and do mission work together. And my wife tells me that this is what made her looked at me not from just a person who was interesting, but potentially a mate, a potential spouse, when I also shared the same burden that she did when it comes to China. And that's why to this day she thinks I tricked her because we're not in China right now. That's what she thinks. But I promise you, I really did. And I still do. I still do. But that's what made us connected. Everything was kind of flashy, was kind of superficial. But when we said, hey, what do you really care about? And we both cared about... Bringing the gospel to the nation of China, it just bonded us and made us open to each other more. It made us wanna get to know each other. It made us even consider what could the future be for the both of us. And guess what, this is why I consider her too. It's not a one-way street. She was open to me, I was open to her as well. I loved that she loved what I loved and I wanted more of her presence because of that. In a similar way, this is who our God is. Our God is a God who looks to renew people to bring his presence to them, and to use them to bring his presence to others, to people who care about what he cares about. What do you care about? What do you like to talk about? What do you post in your Insta stories? What are are the things you kind of do that reflect what you care about? God is looking for people who cares about what he deeply, passionately cares about. And that's the type of people God wants to use. Don't be surprised if God doesn't use you if you don't care about God. Don't be surprised if you don't feel his presence if you don't care about the presence of God. Why would God do that? Why would a shark take investor, invest in an entrepreneur, if they don't care about the product that the investor cares about? They want to make sure that this person, they care about the same thing. Why would God do that? And we see in Nehemiah, God, he cares and uses a person like Nehemiah because they care about the same thing. And here's a side note. I can't help but think this is why oftentimes, the church in America is kinda sick these days. The church in America, there's something kinda off. Because many of us, even though we do church, does our churches care about what God cares? I realize more and more, God, even though we as pastors and as members, we care about our size, we care about our social media page, if it's hip, does God really care about that? Does God really care about that? Or does God care, hey, what's your church doing? Are you making disciples? Are you focused on the mission? I realize for a lot of us, we were worried like, do, do I fit in? Do I have friends here? Do I have a group here? Do I have a clique here? And I care about that. I empathize with that. I don't know if God cares about that. I don't know if God cares that we're all friends here, but God really cares are we family? Do we love each other like a family? I don't know if God cares that I'm wearing a suit. I don't know if God cares that I'm wearing a a, a shirt here. I don't know if God cares that you guys look nice when you come on Sundays. We care about that. I don't know if God cares. You know what God cares about? You have a heart that hungers for him when you come. Is your heart hungry to meet the Lord? And until God's church starts caring about the things God cares about, how can we ever sense that God's presence is gonna be in his church? Only when our church starts caring about the things of God Can a church experience the presence of God? And can a church have confidence God is gonna use them to spread his presence? But here's the problem. This doesn't come naturally. This does not come naturally to people. We We care about what we care about. We don't care about things that God cares about. So what do we do? How do we change? That leads to the second point. God uses people who are saturated by the word of God. Notice after Nehemiah, he weeps and he fasts. Nehemiah, he starts to pray. This long prayer he prays uh, nine times in the book of Nehemiah, but this is the longest prayer, and this prayer reveals who Nehemiah is and what he's saturated by. Notice when you see Nehemiah prays and why he cares, and we see how, why he cares so much about the things of God. We notice a couple of things through his prayer. Number one, notice that Nehemiah, as he prays, he has a very clear understanding of who he's praying to—a very clear understanding. Look at verse five. Verse five, he says, "And I said, O Lord God of heaven." The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. This is very different from how you and I pray, right? When we pray, Father God, Father God, we just don't know a word we're saying. We're just repeating things that we've heard. But Nehemiah, he is praying to a God who he knows is awesome, a God he knows is mighty, is great, and is someone filled with steadfast love. That's who Nehemiah knows he's praying to, and that's why he's always praying. But also, notice Nehemiah in his prayer. He doesn't just know who God is, who he's praying to, but he's also very confident in what God has promised. Look what it says in verses eight to nine again. Nehemiah prays Remember the word that you, God, commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen there. Again, this is not how you and I pray. When we're in trouble, we go, God, just help me, please. Help me, and that's it. But Nehemiah, he is just quoting stuff. You know what he's quoting? He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy. Nehemiah, he is referencing the promises of God, because in Deuteronomy, God warned there'd be an exile. God warned scattering would happen, but God also promised restoration. So why does Nehemiah pray this way? It's just in his heart. He's just, the story of God is just in him. He is saturated with God's word, with God's story, And this is why Nehemiah prays this way. He knows that he's not just a cupbearer for the king. He knows that. He serves a great and awesome king. That is the story that Nehemiah has just absorbed his whole life. Nehemiah knows that Israel's Israel's situation right now, it's not their destination. Because God promised he would restore his people. It's in his word. And Nehemiah, he plans to take action. Later we see he's going to do something because... God's story has shaped Nehemiah's story. And Nehemiah, he acts in light of the story that God has written. Years ago, I knew a girl. She graduated from college as a sociology major. And no offense, like most sociology majors, she had no idea what she wanted to do. What did she want to do with life? And so we'd ask her, and she just didn't know. She didn't know. And then finally, one day when I was talking to her, she said, I figured out what I'm going to do with my life. I said, what are you going to do? She said, I'm gonna be a baker. I was like, what? What do you mean a baker? She's like, I'm gonna bake bread for a living. Pastries, that's gonna be my job. So strange for me, so random. Because first of all, you don't meet many full-time bakers. That's kind of a random thing here in the OC. Secondly, she was a sociology major. What well, has that to do with what you study for? And third, and most of all, I've never seen her bake in my life. She never baked anything. She never brought anything to potlucks, never to anything church events. Why is she all of a sudden wanting to become a baker? It was so confusing to me. Until later, I talked to her sister. And her sister said, you know why she wants to be a baker? She's been watching Korean dramas. And in these Korean dramas, she saw two of them where the main character, she was a baker. And through her baking, she loved her baking life, and she met the man of her dreams, and they got married, and they they created these shops that baked things together. And that's why she all of a sudden wants to be a baker. In other words, it had nothing to do with her skill, nothing to do with her major, with her passion. It had to do with a story that influenced her, that inspired her to strive to be a baker. You see, the reason why she does this is the same reason why you and I do what we do. All of us, we are not living and acting based on the facts that we know or the knowledge that we have. We're doing it based upon a story that we are living our life on. All of us do this. James Smith, he wrote this book called Imagine the Kingdom. He says it like this, quote, our actions as human beings emerge from how we imagine the world. What we do is driven by who we are, by the kind of person we've become, and that shaping of our character is, to a great extent, the effect of the stories that have captivated us, that have sunk into our bones, stories that picture what we think life is about, what constitutes the good life. We live into the stories we've absorbed, we become characters in the drama, that has captivated us. And this is why for many of us, for many of you, you make the plans that you do. You set the goals the way you do, because you're captured by our story. Some of you, the reason why you are so stressed about where you are in your career is because you are living based upon a story, the story of success. You need an established career. You need to make sure that you meet it here, in your 20s is good, in your 40s no good. That's when you restart your career later, you're devastated. This isn't part of what the timeline's supposed to be. You have a literal timeline of how things are gonna go, like a story. You have a story because you think this is the good life and you've absorbed the story and you're living your life based upon this story, the story of success. Some of you, you're stressed about the stability of your life because you're driven by the story of immigration. Your parents have told it to you many times. We immigrated from a different country for you, for you to have a better life than me. So when your car is worse than your parents' car, you feel burdened. When you don't have a home, but your parents have a home, you feel burdened. When you can't take care of your parents, you feel burdened because the story of immigration, your life was meant to be worth the travel of your parents because they all they sacrificed. Some of you, your story, you have a cynical story. I don't know what happened to you, but you're just so cynical. Something happened in your life where like the world is cruel. The world is horrible. Why trust friends, why have friends, they just betray you? Why trust men, why trust women, they're just horrible? Why have kids, this this world is cruel, why bring them into this world? Why have hope, the future is hopeless? You live cynically, you isolate yourself because you've experienced something in your life that makes you view the story this way. And here's the problem, your story is never satisfying. It's never gonna be satisfying until your story stops revolving around you. It needs to revolve around something bigger. And only then will you find a story that actually gives hope, that feels complete, that makes sense. I I watch on this show on YouTube, it's called Actors on Actors. I don't know if you've ever seen that, where pretty much two famous actors are talking about like the movie industry and so forth. And these are like big time names. And I remember the constant theme that I see is that actors, they constantly ask each other, why did you choose this role not this role? Why did you choose this artsy role that made like $20 million versus this $500 million role? Like, why did you choose that role? And especially when you had such a small part. You weren't even the star. Like, why did you choose that? And a lot of times what the actor says is the best experience they realize, it's not just a lot of screen time. It's when you're a piece of the puzzle and you're together, you're collaborating with the writers and the other actors and the director, and you're telling this great story, and those are the most satisfying films to be a part of. And this is what God's word is telling us. When you are saturated with the word of God, you realize it's exactly what God designed for our life to look like. To be one of the pieces of the puzzle, to, create, to tell this great story that God is telling that's far greater than us. We are called to live this way, we're designed to be this way. And as James Smith says again, he says, quote, we are called to be characters in this story to play the role of God's image bearers who care and cultivate God's creation to the praise of his glory. To learn this role has become what we were made to be. This is not play acting or pretending, it's the role we were born to play and in becoming these characters, we become ourselves. So what are you saturated by, church? What comes out of your mouth? What are you naturally interested in? Most likely, there's a story shaping you and what God is inviting us to do, we want to see renewal, revival, He's vining for his story to shape us. Let his word shape you so you can be reminded of the greatest story you're a part of. You're not just a cupbearer. You're not just a teacher. You're not just a parent. You're the child of the most high king. Your life is not primarily about status or reaching security. It's about glorifying God wherever he has placed you. And your sufferings and your setbacks, they are not setbacks that put you off schedule of where you're supposed to be. You're exactly on God's schedule. Just as we need to be up to date on the stories around us in culture and sports and pop history, realize your hearts need to be recalibrated to God's story as well. And this leads to the last point. The type of people who God uses to bring renewal are also lastly people faithful in the opportunities from God. Notice this passage ends where Nehemiah he mentions uh, his plans, and his occupation. It's really interesting. Look what it says in verse 11. Nehemiah says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man now as cupbearer to the king. Who is this man? The, the man he's referring to is the Persian king. Pretty much what Nehemiah is saying is he's, he's in the palace, he's living a ball in life, he works at a top secular job. But Nehemiah, in this context, he really cares about the things of God. He's saturated by the story of God, so he sees an opportunity. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. He has access to the king. And he plans, maybe I could go to him and see what we could do about these broken walls. <laughs> now here's the thing. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw The Last Dance, but the story of Michael Jordan, his documentary. There's a funny scene where Jordan, he's world famous, and there's a French guy who's putting a mic on him, and as soon as he's done putting the mic on him for like an interview, he takes out a paper and asks Jordan for an autograph. And, it, and the guy's like, you don't do that to Jordan. Like, you don't do that when you're working. That's like really off limits. You don't ask for favors like that, and he got in trouble. Nehemiah's in a similar situation. Sure, he has access to the king. Sure, he's a cupbearer. But you don't do that stuff to the king when you're the cupbearer. Again, he's just a cupbearer. He's gonna risk, potentially, his life talking to this king about the situation in Jerusalem. Well, if the king is insulted, going, how dare you talk about this, cupbearer? What if that happens, Nehemiah could lose his position or even lose his life. But Nehemiah, he cared deeply enough about the things God cared about, was shaped deeply enough and saturated by the story of God, he couldn't help but see this as an opportunity to do the things of God. And so what happens is in chapter 2, we see Nehemiah, he goes to the king, and he leverages his position to go and rebuild the wall. And this isn't the only time Nehemiah does this. In chapter 3, we see Nehemiah, he goes to be a cupbearer, to all of a sudden, he's an architect. He starts building the wall. He's just a new job, and he's just faithful in that job. And in Nehemiah, in chapter 5, he goes from an architect to all of a sudden a governor. He starts doing politics all of a sudden, and he does that for 12 years in his life. You see, throughout Nehemiah's life, it's so interesting is that he never waited for the ideal scenario. He never waited until maybe when I get here, then I'll start doing this. Maybe when I get here, then I'll start caring for that stuff. He doesn't wait for the perfect scenario to act by faith and do the work of God. In every situation that Nehemiah is uniquely placed in, he tried to be uniquely faithful in God's calling. In a similar way, every one of us here, you are in a unique, different context from everybody else. Some of you are parents. Some of you are single. Some of you are working. Some of you are students. Some of you are settled. Some of you are transitioning in your life right now. But we all think the same thing. When life gets easier, then I'll start doing something important for God. When this season is over, then I'll start paying attention to things outside of what I'm going through right now. Then I'll start caring about what God, I know, wants me to care about. But what Nehemiah teaches us is there's never a scenario like that because God wants you to be faithful right now. God has uniquely placed you in situations and wants to uniquely notice you to be noticing those situations in your life. How do you begin this? Where do we start? And here's the answer. Where do you sense the burden of God in your life? What burdens do you have? What do you care about? I notice, for example, this is a burden that's unique to me. I'm not sure if anyone else feels this, but you know we have no elders at our church? I'm the only elder, and I'm burdened by that. And I don't expect anybody else to be burdened. But because I'm the only elder, I'm burdened. And so you know what my goal is? We need to find elders, we need to find deacons, and we need to do it right. And so that's happening behind the scenes. If you want to know what I do with my life these days, that's what I do, just thinking, praying, trying to train up future elders in our church. You know, I notice we have a lot of married people in our church, a lot of married folks, and I feel burdened because I go, hmm, I have no idea how those marriages are doing. You guys were gone for the past year and a half. I have no idea how your marriages were. And so I feel burdened. So just like with the elders, I'm thinking, planning, praying for our married couples, I'm just reading a lot. I'm preparing for a new season of marriages being up and down. You know, I've been exposed to a lot of stories of abuse these days. I talk to a lot of people who experience abuse. And I don't know why, for some reason, I just can't shake that, where I have so much empathy for people who have abuse stories. I tell people, hey, if you have a story, I believe you. Like, I believe your story. Like, tell me your story, because I want to dignify that, because I know you haven't been dignified. I don't know why, God just made me uniquely notice it. I try to talk to other people. People don't really see what I see, but I'm like, no, but this is important. And I realize this is just a burden that God has placed in my heart for victims, for churches, for people who went through that. And so I'm meeting people. I'm researching about it. I'm burdened by my, by my parents. I notice they're getting older. I hear, I see parents in their 80s, they're, they're not doing too well. My parents are about to hit their 70s. I feel burdened. I feel burdened. How do I love them well? How do I maximize the time well? And so what I'm doing is I'm praying for my parents all the time. I'm looking for opportunities to enjoy them. And I realize these are not perfect scenarios where God it's clear what to do, but God just placed a burden in my heart. Where has God placed a burden in your heart? What opportunities do you have? Some of you have new jobs. You find yourself with coworkers your age. You have a burden to be a witness. You don't know how, you just have a burden. Some of you have no job, and you find yourself with a lot of time, and you want to maximize it. How do you do it? It's a burden, start there. Some of you notice we have new visitors during the season at our church, because you remember you were once a visitor. You empathize with newcomers. No one else seems to empathize, but you do. You have a burden to welcome. Some of you, you are new parents. You notice there's other new parents and you're in the back holding your baby, sweating too. You're like, oh man, this sucks. I'm burdened because other people are going to this too. I don't know what to do, but I just feel burdened. Let it start there. Let us start there. You may not have a solution yet, but in the process of having a burden and caring about this and praying about this, there's an opportunity that tends to arise. And God uses moments like this, these moments that nobody else notices, but God has placed in your heart, to do something about it. And when you do something about it, something just happens, Where the presence of God just begins to move in your heart and the heart of other people. Let me conclude with this. Will God bring renewal to our community this upcoming season? Is God gonna light a fire in our church where God's presence is gonna be here? And this is the point where I'm supposed to say, it's up to you. Who's going to be the Nehemiah? Who's going to be the Nehemiah? Because we just need a spark. It's dead here. But if we just have someone be the spark, you could bring the change. You could start the fire in our church, and we'll all join you. But you know, if I did that, you're going to get so inspired and then so discouraged. It's hard. I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you're in a small group, and it's like, who's going to share first? Everyone's quiet. Hey, can you share first? Okay, you share first. And it's cool the first time. You'll take the bullet the first time. But if you're expected to do that every single time, man, it's rough. You just wish, can somebody else share first? I'll join you. But why does it have to be me? And that's what happens if I told you, you need to be the Nehemiah here, wake up so that we could all be on fire. It doesn't work that way, especially with God's church. Because when it comes to God's church, it's not up to us to be the Nehemiah that sparks the fire. God uses us as blocks and pieces of the temple, but the building project has already begun with the greater Nehemiah. See, like Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, he lived in royalty. He sat next to the great high king, but he left it all to rescue a broken people in a broken city. Like Nehemiah, Jesus looked upon a people and wept and mourned before them, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Like Nehemiah, Jesus spent his whole life on earth being faithful in the work that God has placed him using every opportunity he has to be faithful. And like Nehemiah, Jesus came alongside the people to rescue them from their broken situation. But, unlike Nehemiah, while Nehemiah did this at the risk of his life, Jesus did this at the cost of his. As Kathy Keller says, quote, Jesus, he is the greater Nehemiah, the one who left the heavenly place, the right hand of the king, safety and glory, to come into a world of need. He joined the blue-collar labor force as a carpenter and spent most of his 33 years building things. He came not just at the risk of death, but with the certainty of it. But if Jesus had not done it, our salvation would not have been accomplished. Realize Jesus Christ, he's here. He's the spark. He's the guy who's sharing first in the small group. He's the one who's setting a tone saying, hey, I'm here first. I'm on a mission first. I'm initiating first. Would you join me? Join me because the fire is ready here. Let it burn. Let it burn in you in the community. Let there be renewal because Jesus is here to bring renewal and when it happens big enough, let there be revival in the city during a season where our city needs it the most. So I'll pray together.